Welcome back to our next episode in this series on grace, where we will continue to speak about purgatory before moving back to grace and taking a look into merit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Blessed Virgin, please bless all of your children who are watching this in order to learn better their faith so that they might fall more and more in love, not only with our Lord, but also with this great church that he has constructed for our salvation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Last episode, we spoke about purgatory in the way in which it is this mercy of God rather than this horrible punishment. Although it is certainly a punishment, it should be seen as a great mercy of God. Today, we'll look, once we have filled out a little bit more this foundation of a theological understanding, we'll look a little bit more at some of the saints and the way in which they encounter purgatory, either by their own theological understanding or mystical experience, as well as uh, just their impression of souls that are in purgatory, because some of them, in fact, many of them, have encountered various souls that they have met. And so we'll look at one or two of those. But before we do, just by way of recap, we spoke about the importance of purgatory in terms of those that are on their way to heaven, but are not yet fully purged or purified in every way. Nothing unclean can enter into heaven. This is the foundation, the basis for which purgatory is necessary. In God's goodness, he does not demand that we be absolutely perfect. That is, if you remember, that all temporal punishment has been paid. Of course, no eternal punishment would exist. That would already have been paid. Otherwise, we would not be in the state of grace at the moment of death, and they would not enter into heaven anyway. So all temporal punishment be paid, as well as every relic of sin be healed, resolved, restored, whether that be wounds from the sins committed or whether that be attachments because of those sins that have formed as a result of habitual action or vice, habitual sin, as well, any other remaining form, device, thing that's left as a result of our imperfections, our imperfect choices. All of those without purgatory would have to be absolutely, perfectly restored at the moment of death or before death in order for heaven to be possible. But by the grace of God, we have purgatory, which means that as long as one dies in the state of grace, they will enter those narrow gates, but they may not enter immediately. If they still have these relics of sin, if they still have unpaid temporal punishment, then they will undergo a purgation, a final purgation of the soul, and they will be tried by fire and perfected as gold is tried by fire and perfected in order to enter perfect and spotless into the glory of God and experience forever his glory in them. We also spoke about the importance of penance or satisfaction. Satisfaction, as I said, it is the payment of the temporal punishment. Satisfaction is the theological term, meaning the payment of that temporal punishment, excuse me. Uh, the satisfaction is the payment of that temporal punishment. Penance is a form of the payment of that temporal punishment. So penance is under the, 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 the topic of satisfaction. But there are other ways as well to pay temporal punishment, which we will look at today. Therefore, 
We spoke about eternal punishment. We spoke about temporal punishment. We spoke about the relics of sin. We spoke about the mercy of God and that a purgatory is heated by the flames of the mercy of God. That is the flame that burns away all of the imperfections before one is then entering into the eternal glory of God. How are we able to pay this temporal debt that is left to us? There are a few different ways. One, doing the penance that is received in confession. The priest, he is there as both doctor and as judge. And as a doctor will discover, diagnose what is the problem with the patient, he will also then offer a solution, hopefully, a good doctor, will give you some kind of solution, whether that be more rest or whether that be more water or whether that be some kind of medication that you then would go and get. But regardless, the idea is to heal the body, not just attack the symptoms, but to heal the underlying cause or problem. Likewise, the priest hopefully is giving a penance that will help you to spend more time with God, which inevitably will build up virtue and therefore help you to overcome those vices that you have. But all the better if you're able to have a penance that attacks the specific issue. For instance, if you struggle with pride to give you a penance that will help you to grow in humility, if you struggle with greed to give you a penance that will help you to be more generous in your giving, these kinds of penances are something that just logically attack the underlying cause of those symptoms of uh, bearing bad fruit, of sinfulness. Therefore, how do we pay our temporal punishment, our temporal debt? One, by doing the penance that received by confession. As I said, the priest is doctor, but he's also judge. And as a judge then determines guilt or not, as well as gives a sentence, a punishment in a sense, of that. And so Christ, who is operating in the priest, forgives the sins of the person, but as a result of the temporal punishment that has been incurred by the sin, then their repentance is just and right to give to the confessor, or excuse me, the one confessing. Secondly, how do we pay temporal punishment? By mortifications in the state of grace. If we are in the state of grace, once we are in the state of grace, prayer. Secondly, fasting. Thirdly, almsgiving. Fourthly, any of these kinds of corporal or spiritual works of mercy to help other people, to give yourself in service, all of these things done for love of God, this all are ways in which we pay for our sins. Have you read in the sacred scripture, and I believe I have it in here somewhere, but I don't remember off the top of my head exactly where, nor do I remember off the top of my head the reference in the past, uh, in scripture, but in scripture it says that charity, that love covers a multitude of sins. I believe it's St. Paul that says this. Love covers a multitude of sins. That is directly related to what we're talking about. If you're in the state of grace, you have divine charity, if you remember. Divine charity is not, it's not a lateral love. It's not a, a, a love just like a mother loves her child. Pagans, mothers, pagan mothers love their children. That's nothing special. It's beautiful. It's important. It's part of us, but it's nothing extraordinary. What is supernatural, what is extraordinary, what is above our nature is this divine charity that accompanies sanctifying grace 
that then is infused into the soul when we receive the sanctifying grace. This divine charity allows us, as I said, it allows us to act in particularly powerful and supernatural ways to do something here and now that makes a result in the hereafter. Likewise, when we act in this divine charity by cooperating with the actual graces of God, go help that person, go feed that homeless person, uh, go teach that person the faith. These kinds of nudges, these kinds of push, pushes from God in divine love, done for the sake of divine love, then become powerful. And not only do they store up reward in heaven for us, as we will uh, speak about in the next episode, but in addition, they also help us in satisfaction. They help to pay the temporal debt. The more love of God that we perform these actions, the more temporal debt that is paid to perfect this life uh, in love, to give of yourself and to learn, to build up those virtues so that all that you do is directed by love of God, for the sake of love of God, this is what perfection in this life looks like. And this is how you can enter into heaven absolutely perfected. So we need God's help, of course, for that. We need to receive his kind of perfecting love in, in order to destroy that which is in us that is not of him and heal all of those relics of sin and pay all of that temporal punishment. So again, how do we pay this temporal punishment here now on this, uh, in this life before we leave this life so that we don't have to go to purgatory? Do the penance received in confession do a little bit more? Second, it is these mortifications in the state of grace. In other words, it is all of this fasting and almsgiving and works of, of spiritual and corporal uh, works of mercy and all of this. And then we also have one other way, and that is what's called, uh, or excuse me, we have two other ways. One is the endurance of the trials of this life. To follow in the footsteps of Christ, he loves. Therefore, love is absolutely essential. But he also in his love, embraces every difficulty that he has. He climbs up on that cross. He freely gives himself. He says, not my will, but yours be done. He undergoes every blow, every spit, every mockery, every humiliation that is dished out by us humans in our sins against him. And he does it in love. Therefore, likewise, we do the same. We say, nevertheless, not my will be, be done, but yours. When something occurs to us, some tragedy, some loss, some loss of life or some loss of job or some loss of, 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 of understanding or clarity in our life and we're just cast into confusion or cast into suffering or cast into loneliness, do we embrace that? Do we accept that? Do we say, not my will, but yours be done? Or do we scream at God? Or do we feel abandoned by him and just continue to move away from him? These are the kinds of choices that we have. But in love of God, if we embrace, when we embrace, we follow in the footsteps of Christ and thereby not only do we grow in holiness, not only do we grow in unity with God, that is, but in addition, we also uh, have the satisfaction uh, in that we are paying the temporal debt of our punishments. So it is the enduring trials in this life in the state of grace and with that charity. And lastly, indulgences. The church is full of wealth. And I don't mean she's full of earthly wealth. I don't mean she has a whole lot of Benjamins in her pocket or something uh, of the sort or a whole lot of gold. I don't have any idea what our church has in terms of money. What I do know is that she is incredibly rich and that is with the merits of Christ on the cross. What he has merited, 
he has given to her and entrusted to her much of in order to bestow blessings upon her people. It is like a father who comes home and brings not only the food in order for the woman to prepare and to fix and to make, but also brings home perhaps some money so that she can then bring the children out and get clothes for school or get any other kind of necessities that they need for school or for anything else. So likewise, our Lord, the groom, the Lamb of God, the groom of the church, the church is the bride, he merits everything necessary not only for our salvation, but also for our perfection from the cross. And he offers so much of that to our lady, excuse me, to the church in order for the church, our mother church, to distribute amongst us in the way that she sees fit. This is very much part of what Christ is telling first Peter and then later the apostles when he says what you bind on earth is bound in heaven. What you bound, bind on uh, and what you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Rather important understanding that she is the steward of many of the merits of Christ. What he has earned, she is able to give out, to offer, to pour upon and into uh, the lives and the souls of her children. Therefore, the church is very rich in her capabilities, in her authority, but also in these great treasures that our Lord has produced by his blood. Say a rich man opens an account for all the poor and the sick of a town. The account has more than enough money to help all the people indefinitely. This is like the church, but on a spiritual level. The merits of Christ and all the saints can be applied to us by fulfilling certain actions because the church has authority and is the steward of the merits of Christ and all the faithful. She is the steward of the merits of Christ and all of the faithful. That we also will examine a little bit more closely here in the near future. Always remember, religion is social. Salvation is social. I don't mean socialism. I mean that it is social in that it is not something that is individual. My salvation is very much intertwined with the merits and the love and the self-gift and the salvation of other people, just as sin is very social. We look at salvation as Catholics very differently. I think a lot of people now use the term my personal Lord and Savior. Well, that is true. If we are saying that Christ is personal, and what we mean by that word is relational, and that is absolutely true. In other words, Jesus desires a relationship with each of us. Yes, 100%. We agree. But many times that is used by personal. They mean individual, as if it is just me and Jesus, and then you and Jesus, and then that guy and Jesus, and that person over there and Jesus. And that is not the way that Christ has constructed salvation. He has constructed a church, a gathering, an assembly for the sake of salvation. And therefore, it is always social. It is always with others that one's salvation is received, as well as, as one's salvation is lost. When I say social, I don't mean that it's absolutely dependent upon other people. It is dependent upon Christ. But it very much includes other people. Let me explain this. So, when Adam and Eve sinned, they did not just affect themselves. In fact, they infected all of creation. Now death 
is everywhere. Suffering is everywhere. No longer does uh, the lion and the lamb lay together and play, but rather the lamb runs and not very well away from the lion who then pounces, eats, and feeds upon the innocent animals or these helpless animals of some sort. Likewise, we now toil with the soil of the ground. We don't, with ease, uh, grow various things, produce fruit, bear fruit in various kinds of plants, but rather we toil. Oftentimes we fail. We don't have enough rain this year, or we have too much rain, or it's too cold, or the frost comes too early. All of these kinds of problems for farmers, all of these kinds of problems for ranchers, all of these kinds of problems in any job. We have suffering. We have difficulties. You wake up and you step on something very sharp. Somebody left a Lego out there. You stub your toe. All of these kinds of problems, these don't occur before sin, but after sin they occur and they occur often. That's how social sin is. We can see Adam and Eve, every child since then, for the exception of the Blessed Virgin and Christ, of course, is conceived in sin. This is how social sin is, that it affects all people. Likewise, when I commit a sin, I don't just affect me. Depending on the sin, I might be sinning against somebody and therefore very clearly direct, uh, affect them, but I affect the world because I am adding this kind of evil into the world. I am aligning myself with the actions of Satan in that moment, and I am, in a sense, spreading a type of darkness, ever so slightly perhaps, in ways that are certainly uh, too small or too imperceptible to us. But the reality is that they exist. That when I sin, other people are affected in some way or another. We may never know exactly how much or to what extent. At least we won't until the final judgment because then we will know how everybody's sins affect everybody else. We will know how everybody's good actions affect everybody else. And so sin is certainly this way, but all the more so is the works uh, of love, the actions of devotion and of faith from other people. Saint Justin Martyr, no, Saint Tertullian, I believe, says something to the effect, not this, but he's oftentimes uh, attributed with saying this, but he says something to the effect, I believe, of the blood of the martyrs has become the seed of the church. This alone expresses how very truly we can say that salvation is social. That you take something as horrid as a brutal murder feeding Christians to animals or putting them in the arena to be slaughtered by gladiators or crucifying them and lighting them on fire to light up the night around Jerusalem or around Rome or wherever, to starve them to death, to put them on a rack, as was done so often in the Protestant persecution of Catholics in the Elizabethan era. There are horrible ways in which many martyrs have died. But their blood, much less than deterring people, though they may have deterred one or two or a few, has led to more and more Christianity. Take, as I've already mentioned in other series, take the fact that the first 300 years 
of Christianity was in the midst of great turmoil and persecution. There was much secrecy and hiding. You couldn't go out to the street and express your love of God. You couldn't make the sign of the cross in a very open way. You would immediately peg yourself as somebody that is against Rome, an enemy of the state, one that must be destroyed for the sake of the unity and the power of Rome to, to continue. Yet, in those three centuries, the Christian faith grew probably more than it ever had. It grew in leaps and bounds. Thousands of people, just with the lives of the apostles, thousands of people were baptized on multiple occasions in a single day. So if that's the case, then take all of these actions of the saints and start adding those up and realizing that God is able to use those and the church is able to use those for the sake of blessing other people. That when you do something for love of God in the state of grace, that you are blessing the world in a certain way because you are giving yourself to God and God, in vain, very pleased with that gift, blesses the world. So it's not you, it's always God, of course, because it's only you cooperating with his grace and it's his reward and blessing that he desires to give, not just to you, but especially to those around you perhaps, but then even more, he also gives in some small way to every human person. There is one analogy in expressing why we wait till the final judgment, or why do we have two judgments? See, we have the particular judgment, that is, that at the end of my life, I will be judged and I will go to hell, heaven, or purgatory immediately. But then at the end of time, there is the final judgment. In this, in this judgment, all people are gathered together. Purgatory is no longer. It's over. And every person is either going to heaven or hell or going back to, if they're already there right now, they will be gathered together and everybody will come to understand, as I said, all of the actions and thoughts, everything that was hidden will be made known to all people. But this is important because we don't know how I might say something or do something that is terrible, that is sinful, but that may affect six generations, eight generations from now, to the end of the world, perhaps. I may murder somebody, let's say, and because of the children's hate that they have for me because I murdered their father, then they may breed hate into their own children. They, the, their, their grandchildren, may do something because of that hate that they grew up with that then causes more problems for their children. You see, and so this kind of moral domino effect is something that we should see in the analogy of a river. That we cannot be fully and properly judged at the moment of our death, even though God knows, of course, everything, all of the actions and all of the dominoes that fall from my actions. He allows them to occur before the final judgment where all of those streams, all of those rivers, all of those domino effects, let's say, are made known to each person. And therefore, we have these two different judgments. But I say all of that to help us to understand that the church, she is wealthy, she is rich, and that she is so because salvation and religion, it is social. God calls us into a church. And so do everything that you can in love for God, because the more that you do, you bless the church. And the more she has in blessing, the more she hands out and gives to others for the sake of their salvation as well. So much good we can do in just a little action with much love. Much love makes small things rather large. And in fact, that she, much love makes them everlasting. Because again, we do something here now that makes effects 
in heaven forever. And part of these effects that take place is satisfaction. This is how we are able to give satisfaction. And then indulgences. As I mentioned, expressing all of this social part of the church as well as the authority of the church, she's able to give out indulgences. What an indulgence is, is not the forgiveness of sins. An indulgence assumes you've already been to confession, you've already received the forgiveness of sins. An indulgence is the wiping out of the temporal punishment. She has the authority, because she is the steward of the merits of Christ and the faithful, she has the authority then to apply various blessings and various satisfaction to people who perform various actions that she has required. For instance, um, let's say, to say a novena of, or nine, I should say, nine days in a row, to say each day the Divine Mercy Chaplet from Easter, or from Good Friday all the way to uh, Divine Mercy Sunday, that is the Sunday after the, 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 the resurrection of our Lord, Easter Sunday. In doing so, you'll receive X, Y, and Z as long as you are detached from uh, all sin as well as go to confession and pray for the Holy Father and our Father, Hail Mary, and a glory be. Something to this effect, right? If you do all of those, then you will have this indulgence. She may say, uh, there are many different indulgences that you can go find. She, she, she can give these indulgences according to her will, which is generally done by, I believe, the Pope, uh, even though a bishop might be able to give an indulgence of some sort in his own diocese. That is something uh, about which I am ignorant, unfortunately for you and for me. So we have these four ways. Again, doing the penance that is received, mortification of this in the state of grace as well as spiritual practices and ascetical practices, as well as enduring the trials of this life and accepting that suffering with charity in the state of grace, and as well as performing indulgences. It's good for us to know how social our salvation truly is. I want to give now, briefly, St. Catherine of Genoa's understanding. If you ever have time, she has a very short book, like 20 pages, uh, called her Treatise on Purgatory or of Purgatory, one of the two. And you can find this free from Google. And in here, she gives or expresses the various visions that she had of Purgatory. St. Catherine of Genoa, G-E-N-O-A. She also expresses much of what I have, she calls rust, what I call temporal punishment, or what the church calls, theologically, temporal punishment, as well as the other relics of sin. And she speaks about, specifically, as something I've already mentioned, the flames of purgatory being the flames of God's mercy. She wants very much people to recognize that purgatory is a mercy because she even goes so far as to say that if you take a person, a soul, let's say, who's in purgatory and is in, in great distress and great suffering because of the imperfections that they have, they're in this absolutely burning love of God for us. And all that burning love of God is burning away the imperfections of this soul. Let's say once that soul achieves that perfection by way of it being purged, all of the imperfections being purged out, that if that soul were to remain in purgatory, that soul would not suffer anymore because that burning love of God would have no imperfections that cause the pain to the soul, if that makes sense. So again, just emphasizing that purgatory is a mercy of God and that it is from his loving mercy that the suffering comes, not because of him, but because of our aversions to it according to these relics or temporary debt we still owe. A few quotes from her treatise. 
One, quote, I believe no happiness can be found worthy to be compared with that of a soul in purgatory, except that of the saints in paradise. Let me just repeat that part before going on. I believe no happiness can be found worthy to be compared with that of a soul in purgatory, except that of the saints in paradise. And day by day, this happiness grows as God flows into these souls. More and more as the hindrance to his entrance is consumed, sin's rust is the hindrance. And the fire burns the rust away, so that more and more the soul opens itself up to the divine inflowing. End quote. How many of us actually think that purgatory is something with great happiness? But St. Catherine of Gen Genoa, who's been given this supernatural knowledge in a private revelation, realizes and teaches that purgatory is a place filled with people that are more happy than anybody, that are happier than anybody else, anywhere else, for the exception of those that are in heaven. But that's not to say that they're not suffering greatly. She says later, quote, Never can the souls say that these pains are pains. So contented are they with God's ordaining with which, in pure charity, this their will is united. End quote. Another quote. So that the souls in purgatory enjoy the greatest happiness and endure the greatest pain, the one does not hinder the other. End quote. I say that because not only does she make very clear that there is no greater happiness in existence than the souls in purgatory, for the exception of those that are in heaven, but at the same time she also says there's no pain on earth like the pain of the souls that are in purgatory. They suffer more greatly than anybody else, for the exception of those that are in hell. However, their pains are such in their recognition that they are only at every moment growing closer and closer to being perfected and entering into the glory of God. And with every moment, they have this, this, this understanding that's more precious and beautiful of what that's going to be like. That they're not even willing to call these sufferings or these pains pains because they realize that this is what's necessary to get to where they want to be. In fact, probably one of the greatest pains for them is the realization that they're not quite yet ready. But with every passing moment, and we don't count moments necessarily in purgatory the same as we do on earth, but for lack of a better term, with every passing moment, they are growing closer to that ultimate perfection which allows them to bask in the glory of God. She also mentions that a person will cast themselves into purgatory readily and, in fact, would rather stay there forever. Once at their judgment, their particular judgment, they meet God and they have this incredible recognition of who he is and how profound heaven will be and how holy he is, that they would, instead of spending one single instant, one half of an instant, in God's presence without being perfected, they would rather cast themselves into purgatory and they would rather stay there for all time rather than come out for that one single instant because they realize how holy, how true, how good, how perfect he is. And therefore, they desire to only be perfect before entering into his own presence. She says, quote, Again, the soul perceives the grievousness of being held back from seeing the divine light. The soul's instinct, too, being drawn by that uniting look, craves to be unhindered and therefore casts itself into the uh, flames of purgatory. Just a couple of verses from scripture to point out purgatory, and then we will end with one or two quick stories and a, a couple of quotes from saints. 
Second Maccabees chapter 12, 43 through 44, excuse me, 45. Quote, he also took up a collection, man by man, to the amount of 2,000 drachmas of silver and sent it to Jerusalem to provide for a sin offering. In doing this, he acted very well and honorably, taking account of the resurrection. For, he, for if he were not expecting that those who had fallen would rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. But if he was looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Therefore he made atonement for the dead, that they might be delivered from their sin. Clearly, if somebody is taking up alms, alms for the sake of those who have gone before, for prayers for them, then clearly there was a belief in the afterlife where people were still not fully perfected, but were not going to hell, way before Catholicism existed, because Maccabees is part of the Old Testament. In other words, even the Jews, or at least many of the Jews, believed in an afterlife of this kind of transitory place or state that is of the souls that are not yet fully perfected, as well as not damned to hell. Secondly, Matthew chapter 12, verse 32, And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the next. Now, if purgatory does not exist, how is it quite possible to be forgiven in the next age, or life, or world, depending on how you translate this? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 10, verses 15, 10 through 15, quote, But each one must be careful how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than the ones that is there, Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, the work of each will come to light for the day uh, will, will disclose it. The day meaning the final judgment, the day of judgment. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each one's works. If the work stands that someone built upon the foundation, that person will receive a wage. But if someone's works... Work is burned up, that one will suffer loss. The person will be saved, but only as through fire. End quote. So clear do we have examples of purgatory, of an afterlife, of possible forgiveness after this life. Not forgiveness of mortal sin, not a payment of eternal punishment, but a remission and an atonement, a perfection and a purgation of the temporal punishment or the relics of sin that still remain from this life. Various saints that have had apparitions of purgatory itself or souls, perhaps some kind of conversation with a soul or something from purgatory, just to name a few, just so we realize this is not something that's rare, that this should be, purgatory should be a very clear belief by all Christians, not just Catholics. St. Teresa, St. Louis Bertrand, St. Mary Magdalene de Pazzi, St. Antoninus, St. Perpetua, St. Gertrude, St. Catherine of Genoa, St. Peter Claver, St. Ludwina, St. Bridget, St. Catherine of Sweden, St. Elizabeth, Padre Pio, St. John Vianney, and more. To give an account of Padre Pio's experience, quote, One evening, Padre Pio was in a room on the ground floor of the convent turned guest house. He was alone and had just laid down on the cot when suddenly a man appeared to him, wound in a black mantle. Padre Pio was amazed and rose to ask the man who he was and what he wanted. The stranger answered that he was a soul in purgatory. I am Pietro de Mauro, he said. I died in a fire on September 18, 1908, in this convent. In fact, this convent, after the expropriation of the ecclesiastical goods, 
had been turned into a hospice for elderly. I died in the flames while I was sleeping on my straw mattress right in this room. I have come from purgatory. God has granted me to come here and ask you to say mass for me tomorrow morning. Thanks to one mask, I will be able to enter into paradise. End quote. After one mass, he will be able to enter into paradise. How much we should be praying for our souls. But if we are praying, excuse me, for our, our brother sisters uh, that are in purgatory, if we are praying for their souls, those souls that are suffering in purgatory, then how much more should we recognize the importance of the communion of saints? That we're not alone. Christ established a church, a community, an assembly. And this assembly is not limited by those that are in heaven or those that are on earth, those that are separated from death. But rather, if we are united to the grace of God, if we are united in this divine charity, which accompanies that sanctifying grace within the soul, then we are united to those that are in heaven and we are united to those in purgatory. And we have an obligation to pray for the souls that are suffering so greatly in purgatory. Those are our brothers and sisters. And they will be happy to pray for us as they perhaps already are in purgatory. There's theological debate as to whether that's true or not. But then as they move from purgatory into the glories of heaven, you know you will have them praying for you because of their appreciation to you we are able to participate in the lessening of suffering of the souls in purgatory here and now. We are able to participate in the rapidity or the more quickly moving uh, and removal of them from purgatory into heaven. That is power. Exercise your power as a Christian. You are not left handicapped in any way. When you are in sanctifying grace, you have power to fight against evil. You are a soldier in the church militant, that is those who are here fighting the good fight here on earth, and you have the power to help those that are even beyond the grave. And you have power to store up for yourselves reward in heaven, as we will begin speaking about in the following episode. That is power. Pray for the souls in purgatory. Realize the reality of purgatory. Avoid purgatory by how you live here. Live your purgatory now. Embrace and accept every form of suffering, no matter how grievous, how big, how distressing it is, because that is ways in which you are able to overcome, heal, and restore your soul entirely to God. Pay that temporal punishment. As that boy giving his own allowance to the Father to pay that window, that's what we're doing in our prayers, in our mortifications, in our penances, as well as in these indulgences and our embrace of the sufferings that we have in this life. God be praised even in our sufferings. God always be praised. Just a couple of last quotes. St. John Vianney says, quote, I come to tell you that they suffer in purgatory, that they weep, and that they demand with urgent cries the help of your prayers and your good works. I seem to hear them crying from the depths of those fires which devour them. Tell our loved ones, tell our children, tell our, all our relatives how great the evils are which they are making us suffer. We throw ourselves at their feet to implore the help of their prayers. Ah, tell me, tell them that since we have been separated from them, we have been here burning in the flames. End quote. Another quote. The practice of recommending to God the souls in purgatory, that he may mitigate the great pains which they suffer, and that he may soon bring them to his glory, is, a most, pleasing, is most pleasing to the Lord and most profitable to us. For these blessed souls are his eternal spouses, and most grateful are they to those who obtain their deliverance from prison, or even a mitigation of their torments. When, therefore, they arrive in heaven, they will be sure to remember all who have prayed for them, says St. Alphonsus Maria de Liguri. 
Therefore, as I said, our prayers, our acts of penance, our spiritual and corporal works of mercy, add to that our prayers and our works of mortification for the sake of the souls in purgatory. This is a great act of love. It's a self-gift, self-surrender of ourselves for the love of God and the love of neighbor. And in doing so, we ourselves receive satisfaction, that is, payment for our own temporal punishments and the restoration of the relics of sins of our souls. Lastly, Pope Innocent died July 16, 1216, the same day he appeared to St. Ludgarda in her monastery at somewhere, in somewhere. Surprised to see a specter enveloped in flames, she asked who he was and what he wanted. Quote, I am Pope Innocent, end quote. He replied, quote, is it possible that you, our common father, should be in such a state, end quote? His response, quote, it is, but too true. I am expiating three faults which might have caused my eternal perdition. Thanks to the Blessed Virgin Mary, I have obtained pardon for them. But I have to make atonement. Alas, it is terrible, and it will last for centuries if you do not come to my assistance. In the name of Mary, who has obtained for me the favor of appealing to you, help me. End quote. With these words, he disappeared. Lutgarda announced the Pope's death to her sisters, and together they betook themselves to prayer and penitential works in behalf of the august and venerated pontiff, whose demise was communicated to them some weeks later from another source. Pray. Pray for the souls in purgatory. Pray for your priests. Pray for your bishops. Pray for the conversion of souls. Pray, 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 and in doing so, you will be allowing God to perfect your soul. You will be cooperating with his graces. You will be paying those temporal punishments. You will be lessening your time, if not completely remitting your time from purgatory. Pray and live your purgatory now, but also proclaim from the mountaintops that purgatory is real, that purgatory is a mercy of God, that purgatory is a beautiful thing, but it is one that we should desire and can not... Uh, can achieve not going to and going directly to heaven according to how we cooperate with the graces of God, according to how we give of ourselves in divine charity, always remain in the state of grace because without it, we have no power, supernatural power that enables us to make ripple effects in heaven, to store up treasures for ourselves in heaven, as well as to pay temporal punishment, that is to receive more and more satisfaction, to love God in the way in which he deserves and desires to be loved Without him, without his grace, we cannot do so. We continue in the next episode, and probably I'll need two in order to finish up uh, the, 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 the whole series on grace and conclude with the importance of merit. May God richly bless y'all. I appreciate y'all's being here and listening. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.